let's just dig right into our um, marvelous text here. And it's Palm Sunday. So as they approached Jerusalem and came to, how do you pronounce that city? Bethphage. Yeah. If you say Bethphage, no one is going to stab you in the eye or anything like that. Perfectly okay, but probably Bethphage. The, the thing about Bethphage is that it doesn't exist today and its location is really unknown. Um, Say that again. Yeah, well, we're not we're not that far yet. So, uh, okay. If I comment that the handout was written in two thousand three, will you think less of me? Okay. Alrighty. I I have a funeral in in an hour, uh, in a bit, and. Uh, I didn't have time to make a new handout last night. So we, rather than modify an old one, I just printed an old one. So here we are. Um, but still in English. Yeah, that's a good thing. Um, so as they came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples. I do have this map where somebody thinks Bethphage once existed. I think because of the size of the Mount of Olives, um, because it's between Bethany and Jerusalem, we have an idea that it was probably just over the crest of the Mount of Olives. Um, so not yet in sight of Jerusalem, but on the other side. And there's kind of only one spot where it could have been, unless there was another road. So, But on the main road that, that would go uh, up the Mount of Olives, up the uh, gentlest slope at least, because the Mount of Olives is actually taller than Jerusalem. When you get to the mountain, top of the Mount of Olives and you're there in Gethsemane, which is the olive grove at the top, you're looking down into the city of Jerusalem, down uh, in, even into the temple court. Um, uh, so there, there's really only one great way to get up there. Um, and so probably this is a pretty good idea of where it was. I had a different animated map, but this one serves the purpose much better. So I like this one better. Um, but kind of tells you where we are. So we continue. Jesus told them, go to the village ahead of you. Immediately you will find a donkey tied there along with her colt. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you are to say the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. So in uh, the other Gospels, in fact, there are three Gospels, there's something else we learn about this donkey and its colt. It had never been ridden. That detail isn't here in Matthew, and I'd like to stick with Matthew as much as possible, but that's a detail that we kind of wonder about. Um, is there some significance there? Is this an echo of the Old Testament sacrifices? You know, that they were to be... Uh, uh, set aside specifically for temple use and never have been used for anything else. Um, the, the red heifers that had never been under the yoke were to be used for a sacrifice for purification. That's in Numbers 19. And uh, when a town wanted to show that it was innocent of an unsolved murder, 
Then they used the same blood of that same heifer. Um, but there's no connection to those laws here. So it's not exactly sure uh, why Jesus would have asked for this particular kind of an animal, but he did. Um, uh, but there is a curious sort of side uh, bar to all of this. If you had your choice between, uh, say, a donkey that's been broken, meaning it's been ridden, and a wild zebra, which one would you climb on the back of? You know, and, and, and th 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 so there's, there's, there's kind of an odd uh, uh, twist to all of this. Um, Jesus climbs on this young animal, large enough to be ridden and yet never having been ridden, perfectly submissive, obedient, willing. It does what the Lord wants it to do, um, so forth. And is that a model maybe of, of my Christian life? I'm really unbroken, wild, untamed, sinful, but Christ wants me to do other things and shouldn't I behave as this animal did and be submissive and allow myself to do what the Lord wants me to do? Am I perfectly submissive or not? Am I obedient? Am I willing to carry my Lord into the world, even to a hostile city? Or do I go, my, go off on my own way uh, at times? So if I've gotten too, uh, uh, please throw things at me if I get allegorical ever in my, in, in my, in my comments and so forth. But All right, verse 4 and following. Hi, Larry, there's a seat over here. This took place to fulfill what was, spoken, what was spoken through the prophet. Tell the daughter of Zion, look, your king comes to you, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did just as Jesus commanded them. They brought the donkey and the colt and laid their outer clothing on them, and he sat on it. Matthew, or rather, Zechariah says it. Sometimes the other Gospels will say them. If a Gospel says he sat on them, we take that to be the clothing. In other words, more than one coat, not more than one animal. Um, anybody who's ever been to the circus and seen a guy riding on two horses at once, that's not what Jesus was doing. Okay? Standing up, you know, with one hand hooting and hollering and everything like that, um, or some weird double wide uh, colt saddle or something like that. No, he's riding on one of them, and the other one is tagging along. Um, but here we have also this reference to um, Zion, the daughter of Zion, and who exactly is he speaking to? Well, this is Zechariah nine nine, of course. Um, maybe, arguably, in fact, one of the most famous of the verses of the minor prophets. I mean, apart from some of the Christmas prophecies, like you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, or something like that, this is the one we hear every year, isn't it? The, the, the colt, the foal of the donkey prophecy from Zechariah 9. But when he addresses the daughter of Zion and says, your king comes to you, he's addressing people who believe because he's their king and they're going to take him as their king. And 
that uh, Luther points out that this uh, shows us that there are two kinds really of believing or of two kinds of faith. First is there faith where you indeed believe that Christ is such a man as he is described in the Bible and he's, that's the way the Gospels portray him and proclaim him. Um, but you are tempted to think that he's not the man for you, that Christ is the Savior, but not my Savior. And there are people who do that. There are people who will set aside Christ and say, he's not for me. Um, I must do something on my own. And uh, in today's world, these are folks who want to take on the problem of sin on their own and say, I will do it by my choices. I will, it's a very American thing to say, isn't it? I will pull myself up by my, my own bootstraps, uh, whatever that means, that weird, insane, impossible picture, that I will be a self-made man, and I will be, and yet, in the early days of American Christianity, in, uh, and what, what century are we talking about? When, I mean, when was America discovered? 1492. I mean, the end of the 15th century. So the 1600s are when America really, and the 1500s, the 16th century, is when America is first beginning to be explored and so forth. But it is the 1600s, which is the 17th century, before you really have the Christianization, I just make up a word there, of, of, of America. And those individuals, those preachers who rode up and down the countryside because they, you know, there, there weren't trains, there weren't roads and so forth, there were just paths for horses or mountain passes, and they were often called circuit riders. But those individuals that were coming out of England, in particular in New England, were the forerunners of the Methodist church. And they had a Methodist theology. And Methodism very much fits in with the American ideal of my own bootstraps. And I will save myself by my own good works. And, uh, and that begins to unite Americans in a dialect, in a theology, in a political agenda, all kinds of things come out of those circuit riders and those revivals that they had, those tent meetings. Because they would set up a tent on the outskirts of town and have a big old revival. And that became very popular in the East, but especially in the Southeast. Um, so that's a very much a Virginia thing, a Georgia thing. It becomes a Tennessee thing, a Kentucky thing, and, uh, and beyond, and kind of an Arkansas thing later on. And uh, that's, that's where that really comes into play. Um, um, and where people might think that Christ is Savior for men like, sure, Peter and Paul and the saints, but to me, can I expect the same thing from him? And that's where this other kind of faith says finally no. But that kind of a faith doesn't receive anything from God. Um, it doesn't receive any of Christ's blessings. It doesn't enjoy the peace we have from the forgiveness of sins. Um, 
That's a faith which the devils have, isn't it? I know who Jesus is, but he's not for me. And what does the Bible say the devils uh, do when they show that that kind of faith? They tremble. Yeah, they tremble. Um, but Peter says in 2 Peter 2, there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Um, but let's go on in our text because uh, Zechariah, and now Matthew quoting Zechariah, um, says, tell the daughter of Zion, your king comes to you. Um, Christ is proclaimed here, the king who is someone that we should listen to, to receive, to treasure him, to obey, um, and we are to believe what Jesus did for ourselves and not doubt it. Um, that Not doubt that everything will be fulfilled just as the word of God says. That's really the only kind of true Christian faith. When we receive him as our king, this one who came humble, riding on a donkey, on this colt, and the disciples, they, what do they do? They go and find everything just as Jesus commanded them. The pro, all the promises that God makes, all the promises that Christ makes, are all fulfilled. They, are, they all come true. And then they bring the donkey and the colt and lay their, 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 their clothing on them, and he sits on this. Um, anything that far, up to verse 7? Yes. In that sense, yes. Yeah, and it's a, a tragedy. But now, that's the teaching of the church as a whole. That doesn't mean that every Methodist sitting in the pew believes that. Because God be praised, there are Methodists who fall asleep during the sermon. <laughs> and so what do they have? They sing the hymn. They hear the liturgy. They say the creed. They say the Lord's Prayer. And two, three, four times a year, they receive the Lord's Supper and they witness baptisms and the gospel works in their heart. So God be praised and thank God for boring preachers who put their people to sleep occasionally um, because those people will miss some of the intricacies. I, some of you know this. I once spoke to a Methodist preacher the day, the very day that she retired from the ministry. And she was a guest actually in my father's home on that day. And my sons and I play a game at mealtime before we say the prayer. When they were littler, my boys and I would learn their memory work before we said the table prayer. So what's your passage? And we would always default to the youngest boy who had memory work. What's your verse? We'll say the verse together. We all learn it. Then we say our table prayer, come Lord Jesus, and then we eat. When they got to be a little bit older, we would be doing that not with their Bible verses, but with their catechism. And their what does this mean and everything. And it got more and more complicated. And once in a while, they would laugh at dad because I'd make a mistake and I'd have to look. And okay. But I still to this day keep a handwritten copy of the catechism in my kitchen. Uh, which is what I read out of. I occasionally do copy out the kitchen, the kitchen, the catechism by hand, 
because writing it down helps to put it back in my memory. Um, and I'm really thankful that, uh, what is it, um, uh, the, the, our, our last big box store, um, Walmart, has that uh, stationary diary section with the blank books in it because they come in very handy for making your own little handwritten catechism every once in a while. Well, when the boys got even older and stopped having regular memory work or they would have Mr. Capsule at the high school who makes them make up their own memory work and then they've got to really work at what passage am I going to learn this year and things like that. Um, we started playing Bible trivia or doctrine trivia and then everybody, somebody names an event and then we all have to name an example of that event in the Bible. It's kind of a fun game, you know. Uh, you know, name a, a healing miracle. Then we go around the room and everybody has to do it. Well, we were doing it with doctrines this day and I thought I would throw a softball at this Methodist preacher because we're all going to do this. And so I asked, well, what's baptism? And her response was, that's really a hard one. I don't think I know. It was the day she retired from being a Methodist pastor. Um, which betrays the training given, um, but also is an insight into what did that congregation listen to for the last 12 years where that was their pastor. Um, so, not a very pretty story. You know, for, a, for about two seconds, that's funny until you remember that there are souls affected by this. Um, and it's very disturbing, very troubling. A very large crowd spread their outer clothing on the road. Others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them out on the road. The crowds who went in in front of them and those who followed kept shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna is a general praise word at this time in Israel. But it comes from the earlier days when it was actually a question and a, and a prayer all in one word. Hoshiana means please save me in Hebrew. Or save please or even pretty please. That na at the end is a special particle of entreaty it's called. Um, but it becomes basically a praise word a little bit like hallelujah or something like that. Um, I, uh, I wanted to share something with you about this and I, I don't know if we'll ever have the opportunity so I'm just going to throw it out now. Uh, the, the name of the guy in Israel today you, you recognize it is, is Netanyahu. Um, do you understand that that's basically the same name as anybody named Nathaniel like our Pastor Sharf or Jonathan like my son? It's the same name. In fact Netanyahu is simply the name Jonathan with the part at the end, God's name, I'm sorry, at the, Jonathan is the beginning of the name because Nathan is Natan, which means gave in Hebrew. So Jonathan is Yah or the Lord gave, right? Well, Netanyahu is simply our Lord gave. It's the same name. It's the same name. It sounds a little odd and funny, right? But that's all it is. It's just a switching of, of just 
the word Jonathan, or Nathaniel, which means my God instead of the Lord, but also still gave. Make sense? Okay, there's your Hebrew lesson. Let's move on. I didn't know they did. So therefore, I can't answer the question. Okay. Um, can you imagine seeing Jesus riding like this, though? To see him for the only time in his ministry in all of the three and a quarter years that crowds praised him as the Savior. Um, and not really yet as king, but as Savior. He would be praised as king, but only in mockery in about a week from now, and only by the Romans. But for this one moment, the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is Psalm 118. And the idea of doing anything in the name of the Lord really goes back to Genesis. And um, I, uh, I did a list. I think this was actually in a sermon this year. I, 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 I did a list of all of the different things in the Bible. I think there are 18 of them that you can do in the name of the Lord in Scripture. So there are, there are different examples of people um, preaching, blessing, swearing, swearing friendship, confessing faith, prophesying, living one's life, um, wanting to be washed and baptized in the name of the Lord, to pray in the name of the Lord, and then approaching in the name of the Lord. But all of these different things, and there are even more, I think, than this. Um, and here, Christ is the one coming in the name of the Lord. Now that also means... Um, when, you, when you hear this spoken, especially in the New Testament, remember the word in. Because in the Greek language, the word in, which is almost the same word, it's pronounced en, but it draws a circle or a sphere around an object. So if I'm doing something in the name of the Lord, that means in Greek that I'm doing it in his name and in nobody else's name. So I've stepped inside that circle, and no part of me is outside of that circle. That means that's where I am, and this is in whose name I'm doing it, and therefore, under his approval, his praise, by his authority, um, all of that, what I'm doing, if it's in the name of the Lord, should agree with everything the Lord has said. Does that make sense? So especially when you see Christ doing something in the name of the Lord, that's an absolutely pure moment. And I mean, what wouldn't be in, 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 the, in the life of Christ? But it's a special reassurance for us. Okay, when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred, asking, who is this? And the crowds were saying, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Here Matthew says crowds in the plural. I've done a word study in the Gospel of Mark um, on this word for crowd, which is the word achlos, like, uh, well, just in the back of the throat, that's just how you say it. And um, in Mark, it's always plural. Mark never talks about one crowd around Jesus. He talks about crowds, plural. So it, it gives you the idea that there are just, what would we say? Lots of people, gobs of people, oodles of people, Whatever other. Anybody else have a collective word for people? I guess crowds is a nice word. We can use that. 
So lots and lots of people. And the people answer. The city folk don't know. But these folks had gone out to see him and had been cheering and chanting. And they, they, they make this pathway of their coats so that even the animal doesn't have to walk on the, on the, on the path. Can you imagine how that would become kind of a thing in your household? Dad, how come you never wash your coat? Well, because there's a hoof print on it. You know, and what would you tell your children for years? You know, in my living room right now, there is what I, I believe is probably the, words, the world's worst mounted set of deer antlers. Okay? And I have been told that someday, what I certainly believe in my experience to be the world's greatest set of antlers will join it. Um, so I'm not going to say anything more about that, but what's coming is from my dad. I won't even tell you where I got the thing that's in there now, but it's awful. It's just awful. Because um, um, it's an uneven rack. There's one just spike and one kind of curved thing with a nub and an extra point. And I'm not even sure if it's a two-point or a three-point. I think, do they have to be one inch to count as a point as in antlers? Does that sound right? Because I, I haven't measured it, and I'm not sure. So it might just be a, 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 a spike and not a, and not, anyway. Um, but uh, can you imagine in ancient times having, uh, you know, your, your, your dad's cloak hanging on the wall forever like a pair of deer antlers? I mean, like a trophy. This is where my Lord's donkey rode on the way into Jerusalem. And I'm really surprised, I have to say, of all of the relics that Luther says he saw in Rome, you know, enough true fragments of the cross to build a whole church with, you know, exactly how many skulls did John the Baptist have after he was beheaded? Because there are at least 15 in Italy, you know, and, uh, and all of this stuff. And why aren't there, you know, 3,000 ancient cloaks with hoof prints on them. I mean, and nobody ever thought to do that. I mean, even if you were going to do it as a hoax, why, where are they? Wouldn't that have been a better hoax? But I don't know. I, I, I don't understand the, the, the idea of that kind of iconography or whatever it is either. But it seems like, seems like somebody missed a big opportunity, though. Now, when this goes online, they'll show up. Watch. They'll... <laughs> Suddenly they'll be around. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. You've been listening to Invisible Church, the Bible study podcast from St. Paul's Lutheran Church, New Wall, Minnesota.